0: Now, this morning, we're wrapping up our sermon series uh, called I Will, Five Commitments of Every Christian, and we come this week to the fifth of those commitments. Uh, I mentioned to someone earlier in the series that uh, I called this Five Commitments of Every Christian and not the Five Commitments of Every Christian, Christian because I don't think this list is exhaustive. I think there are other commitments that believers make, but certainly in regards to the individual believer's relationship to their local church, these are commitments we need to make to worship with our church family, to be humble and obedient, to support the work. I almost forgot it, but I remember Support the work of our church through prayer and through giving, to serve and care for others in the power and strength that God supplies and wherever there is need in the local church. And now this week, the last of these commitments that we'll look at is to make disciples. I will make disciples of Jesus Christ. This morning I'm going to preach a passage of Scripture that maybe to your shock and surprise uh, in finding out I have never preached before. This morning, we're looking at Matthew 28:16 through 20, a passage of Scripture often called the Great Commission, Jesus' last words, his, his final orders to His disciples before He ascends to heaven after having died for sins and being raised from the dead. I, have, I even went back and looked at sermons uh, or Bible studies that I had done in, in past ministry places in my life, and I can't find any notes anywhere of me ever having preached or taught this passage. I surprised myself. I think somebody said that's weird. It is weird. It is a little bit strange, but I'm really excited to dig into Matthew 28:16 through 20, the Great Commission, this morning, as we look at the last of these five commitments to make disciples of Jesus, dear friends. This is the point. This is the the, the overarching idea from Matthew 28:16 through 20 that having been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. All Christians have been commanded by Christ to make disciples, to make other followers of Jesus until he returns. This happens, the process of making disciples happens through the the intentional means of declaring the gospel, of inviting the lost to believe, of baptizing by immersion the converted and teaching them to go and do likewise. As we explore the Great Commission today in a little bit of depth, I pray that we would be committed after having listened to and heard God's word, be committed to obeying Christ by intentionally and diligently making disciples of Jesus. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His word? Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Again, a passage I have never preached before. Matthew, the tax collector and disciple of Jesus, ends his gospel this way. God built His church as we study His Word. You may be seated. It may surprise some of you, looking at this text this morning, that there is only one command in all of the verses, 16 through 20, of Matthew chapter 28. Only one command. That one command comes to us in verse 19. And it's not the first or second word that is there. It's not the word go, but rather the, the command that we have as two words here in English, Make disciples. That's the only uh, command, the only imperative that Christ gives in this passage. We'll look at that a little bit more, but there's one command to be obeyed. And that is not necessarily to go, but the command is to make disciples. The word for disciple in Greek means learner, follower, pupil, student. We're to make those who walk after Jesus, develop those who follow Jesus, even as we have been called by him to follow him. So let's look a little bit more about this command to make disciples in the process of making disciples. In this passage, we find first that making disciples is commanded by the risen Jesus. It's commanded by the risen Jesus. When we consider this text, we must first consider who it is that is giving this command, shouldn't we? Who it is that is speaking to us. Because certainly the impetus for obeying the command comes from the one who is is speaking and the authority, the office, the, the position of the one that is speaking to us. Now, nearly always, we're very quick to recognize that it is Jesus who is instructing his disciples here, and rightly so. But if your takeaway from this verse is that sharing the good news that Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead is important to do because Jesus commanded it, congratulations, you are reading this text well, okay? If you read Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and you have any conviction to obey it, you're reading it rightly. But humor me just a moment and look a little longer at the one who's speaking, this is not the Jesus who is, who is speaking to the disciples. This is not the dashboard, bobblehead, buddy Jesus posing with a wink and smile and thumbs up like the fawns. This is the Son of God who just weeks before this passage was beaten, stripped Publicly crucified, bearing the sins of the world, paying the price of death that our sins demand. This is the same Son of God who, though He died, rose again just days later to the chagrin and embarrassment of the religious leaders and the Roman government. This is the eternal and infinitely majestic Christ who now is risen and glorified, never to die again, speaking to His disciples. When the disciples see Him, Notice how they relate to Him. They do not relate to the risen Jesus by cozying up to Him like old college pals, but they fall on their faces and worship. Verse 17, when they saw Him, they worshiped. Some, Matthew tells us, even doubted. That word that is translated doubt is used only two times in all of the New Testament. It's used here in Matthew 28 verse 17, and it's used also in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 31... We have the incident where the disciples had been with Jesus all day one day as he's teaching and preaching, and he tells them to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, um, and he'll meet them on the other side. And in the middle of the night, this tempest arises uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are all freaking out because their boat is being tossed about. They think they're going to sink. Peter looks up in the middle of the storm, and he sees a figure walking to him on the water, and he recognizes that it is Jesus. And Jesus calls Peter out of the boat to come and walk to him. And so when Peter steps out of the boat onto the storm-tossed sea of Galilee to walk toward Jesus, who is walking toward him on the water, Peter turns and sees the wind and the waves and he loses focus on Jesus and he begins to sink into the water. And Jesus grabs Peter's hand, pulling him back up, saying, you of little faith, why did you, there's that word again, doubt? The doubt of some of the disciples is not necessarily the disbelief that many skeptics have. We don't need to always understand the word doubt to be skepticism or disbelief, but rather the kind of doubt that the disciples display in chapter 28 of Matthew verse 17, I think is better understood as having a kind of hesitancy and uncertainty that comes with seeing now the risen and reigning Jesus with their own eyes, being uncertain of what this miraculous and glorious development means for them. Their entire world has been turned upside down when Jesus rose from the dead. Their entire paradigm of what the Messiah would be, not, not as a political king, but, but now as, as this crucified Savior, all of that has been totally turned upside down. And so everything that the disciples expected God's promised Messiah to do has been kind of upended. And now here's this glorious Jesus risen from the dead standing before them, and they're worshiping, but at the same time going, I don't really know what this means. Then Jesus speaks. When the disciples saw him, they bowed down and worshiped, but some doubted. And then Jesus speaks. He reveals to them with clear language who he is and the power that he holds. He says in response to their worship, but with some of them doubting, some of them being hesitant, some of them being uncertain about what the future holds, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What a response to the uncertainty, to the hesitancy of the disciples. Uh, th- this uh, uh, insight sort of came to me by surprise this week, as as I was because normally we read Matthew twenty-eight. We look just at verses eighteen through twenty when Jesus just uh, you know pops on the scene and says, "All authority in heaven and no, earth has been given to me. Go make disciples." And and, and and it's not wrong to just look at those verses, but when we see the context in which Jesus says this, it it brings kind of a whole new light to what's going on. The disciples are worshiping, but they're uncertain about what's going on. And in response to their uncertainty, Jesus says, All authority is mine. Yeah. Amen. This means that all power to rule and to reign over all creation, physical and spiritual, now rests in the hands and in the will of the risen Son of God. There is no one in the universe with greater power. There is no one that can give confidence in the face of doubt and hesitation like the all-authoritative Jesus. Lots of people can give commands to men, but none can give commands with the pure and compelling authority of Jesus, who stands alive and glorified, victorious over sin and death and Satan. Lots of people can tell you what to do. Few people can do it. No one else can do it, let me say, like Jesus can. The command that he gives to his disciples, the command that he gives is singular. Right, there's one imperative in this passage. It's therefore it's in verse 18, the one command, make disciples. All authority is mine. Therefore, make disciples. That term disciple, we've said, means learner, pupil, follower. And just as Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John fishermen in Matthew chapter 4:19 saying, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men," so now he says to those same followers of his, "Go fish for men." Bring others to follow me as you have done. Spend your lives pointing men and women and children to me and leading them to follow after me just like you did. I told you what I would make you. Now I've made you that. Get about doing what I've made you to do. The command to make disciples is a command given by the risen Jesus. So, dear Christian, obey the great commission. Obey this command from Christ, not out of obligation, but like the disciples out of worship for the one who has commissioned you. There's no guilt trip given by Jesus here saying go make disciples or, or else anybody who ends up in hell because they didn't believe in me, it's all your fault. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says all authority is mine. I've got everything under control. Just go make disciples. Yeah. Make obeying the great commission in your life not a matter of of." Uh, of obligation or, or uh, uh, duty born out of guilt, but rather do it out of obedience to Christ and worship for the one who has saved us. Amen. Sometimes we have far too, uh, a far too truncated, a far too limited understanding of what worship is. Sometimes we say that word worship and immediately what's conjured up in our mind is what we're doing right now, gathering together as a church, singing songs, hearing a sermon. But friends, all of our life is worship. Every moment of our life in Christ is made for worship, ought to be worship. Everything that we do, every task that we complete, every job that we work is meant to be an expression of worship, an act of worship. Making disciples of Jesus is not to be done out of duty to Jesus who makes you feel guilty for not doing it. Making disciples is done out of worship for the one who died and rose again to save us from our sins. Christian, obey the great commission out of worship for the one who has commissioned you, Jesus, the risen Lord. We see next that making disciples, not only commanded by the risen Jesus, but we see that making disciples must be intentional. Making disciples must be something we do on purpose. After Jesus reasserts his universal authority, he gives his command. But the way that he gives this command should catch our attention. He says, go, make disciples. Now, most of our English translations translate that word go like a command, like an imperative, which is why sometimes we're confused about what the command is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Is the command go or is it make disciples? The word go does not appear in command form in the, in the Greek in which Matthew originally wrote his gospel. It appears rather as a participle. That's a technical term. All you need to know is a participle is an ing word, right? Uh, Words that end in ing, a word that is normally used to describe the way a command or an action is to be completed. So for instance, if I were to say, um, uh, going to the store, buy me some bananas and apples, right? The command is to buy me bananas and apples. But the way in which you fulfill the command is by going to the store. You follow? And so Jesus is doing, uh, Matthew is relating the words of Jesus in a similar way. The command is make disciples. But there's a descriptor to the command, which is go or going. Some have here translated, tried to translate this participle with its ing ending on it. And they've come up with translations like, while you are going, make disciples. Or along the way, Make disciples. Wherever you happen to be, all along the path of life, make disciples. But as one scholar of the biblical languages says, to translate this participle this way is to make the great commission into the great suggestion. Like like saying, if it's convenient to you, and you have clear opportunity, and you don't have to go too far out of the way, consider making disciples. Or, Or even worse, along the path of your life, if you want as you have desire, consider making some disciples. To, to translate the participle here in Matthew 28 of go with the ing along the end uh, almost makes the command that Jesus gives too light, too easy to disobey. The same scholar who says translating the word go with I-N-G on the end or as along the way or as you go, he demonstrates that this particular participle, which shares the same tense as the command to make disciples, like other places in the New Testament, it takes on the mood of the command that it precedes. It takes on the mood of the command that it is uh, uh, augmenting. This means that going is not a condition for making disciples, but going is the precise circumstance required for making disciples. Disciples of Jesus will not be made apart from intentionally going to make them. Look further at who are to be made into disciples. Jesus says all nations. Therefore, go, make disciples. You must intentionally make a decision to get off your duff and make disciples of all nations, this means literally of all people groups, how can the disciples, friends, how can we hope to make followers of Jesus from among all the people of the earth if we do not set our feet with intentionality to accomplish this task? How can we do it if we do not determine to do it? Going to make disciples means pointing others to to, to Jesus as the one who died for sins and rose again as the Savior that God promised to send. And it requires doing this in a strategic, planned, organized, dedicated, systematic fashion. Making disciples will not happen by accident. It will not happen by happenstance. The great commission will not be fulfilled serendipitously but only as followers of Jesus determine in their minds to obey the command of Christ on purpose and with a purpose. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus today and you are committed to making disciples of Jesus, strategize today. Begin planning now about how you will make disciples of Jesus. You've got a whole page in your worship guide for sermon notes. Use that page and make a list right now of the people that you see every day. If you have kids in your house, they ought to be at the top of your list. If you work with the same group of people every day, put them on there. If you frequent a particular coffee shop or grocery store and, uh, with a particular rhythm of life and you always have the same barista or the same cashier, write their name down. Write down the names of people you see all the time, have conversations with every day on a regular basis. And now think about how God may enable you to turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations making disciples doesn't happen by accident. It won't happen serendipitously. So you need to make a plan to make disciples in your life. You need to strategize now. Think about the people God has put into your life, the situations, the relationships that he has given to you and start making a plan to make disciples in those circles of influence. And then friends, work your plan, make a plan and then work the plan. You know who these people are. You know you know where your children are spiritually. You, you if, if you know your neighbors, probably have some idea of, of where they are, whether they're in Christ or not. You know where your coworkers are at spiritually and what they think about the Bible. You know more than maybe you would like to admit where most of the people in your life are spiritually. Recognizing where they are for those who are outside of Christ, make a plan to have conversations about Jesus with them. I can't do it for you. The church can't complete this task on your behalf. The command that Jesus gives is certainly to the church, but it is not just for pastors to complete. It is for every follower of Jesus. So strategize today about how you'll make disciples of Jesus. Make a plan and work that plan. Making disciples is commanded by Christ. Making disciples uh, is done intentionally in an intentional fashion. Third, making disciples of Jesus requires a public commitment to Christ. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I love that Jesus is good not only to provide the command. He doesn't just say make disciples and then like leave. But he actually gives some instruction about how disciples will be made. He explains uh, that that disciples will be be made. Disciples will come to him and follow him in a particular way. And he gives two clear means, two clear uh, venues or mediums by which the Great Commission will be accomplished. And the first of it comes to us here in verse 19, where we see another one of these participles, another one of these ing words. And now in our English translations, uh, it is translated with ing at the end, and rightly so. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christians fulfill the commission, the great commission of disciple making first by baptizing newly believing followers of Jesus in the singular name of the triune God. in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians don't believe in three gods, one God who is a Father, one God who who is like a Son, and one God who is a Holy Spirit. Neither do we believe in one God who sometimes appears as Father, sometimes appears as Son, sometimes appears as Holy Spirit. But we believe in one God who is eternally... Uh, who eternally uh, uh, exists as three separate persons. This is a mystery we cannot understand, okay? God is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit. Uh, The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and vice versa all the way around that triangle. But all three are God, and they are the same God. They are not similar kinds of God, but they are the same God. And we are to baptize believers into the singular name of the triune God. Here's a really interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Baptism is actually into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the English word in is used in lots of different ways in, in English. We can say, um, go, if we were to say to someone, uh, go in the store, we're telling them to go from outside the store to inside the store. Or somebody might say, I'm in the store, which means I was never outside, I've been inside all the time right? But the way that Matthew uses the word in here, baptizing them in the name is more like into, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This simple preposition implies that baptism is a means of translating, of moving a believer from one area of allegiance in life into the arena of allegiance to the triune God moving from being allegiant to self or sin or whatever else it might be in the world other false gods perhaps moving our lives out of the area of allegiance to these things and into allegiance to the one triune god we should take notice that baptism does not occur in the new testament apart from repentance and faith in christ baptism doesn't ever occur uh, to somebody who doesn't know that they are making this decision to swear allegiance to Jesus or to say, I'm following Christ. Uh, Acts chapter two, verses 38 through 41. There, the apostle Peter preaches the first uh, sermon, uh, first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. And as he wraps up his sermon, the people who are listening are compelled, they're convicted by this message that Jesus is the Messiah, God promised, He died for sins and rose from the dead. And they say to Peter, What must we do? Like, we're really messed up by this message that you have, have preached to us, and we didn't know how to be obedient to it. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we read this. Peter said to them, Repent, that means turn from your sin, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he uh, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, believing it, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In the Bible, baptism is always, always, always tied to an invitation to believe the gospel message that Christ died for sins and rose again. And the act of baptism almost always seems to be happening publicly. We don't have any instances of private bathtub baptisms in the New Testament. The earliest formula of belief for Christians was the statement, Jesus is Lord. And it was a statement given in contradiction to the expectation of the Roman government that all would declare Caesar is Lord. So everyone living in Rome declared Caesar is Lord. And all the Christians said, Jesus is Lord. And so you can see how this allegiance to Jesus, which supersedes allegiance to the state, is an affront to the Roman government. And you can see why Christians were persecuted by the Roman government so quickly in their history. Friends, to follow Jesus is not to rebel against civil authorities, but it is to say to civil authorities that there is one who has an even greater influence on our lives. There is one who garners an even higher obedience than any authority on earth. And that one is the risen Christ. So when we declare that Jesus died for sins and rose again, and we call people to turn from sin and place their faith in Jesus, there is this kind of public commitment that we are calling them to. When we share the gospel with people who have not trusted Christ yet and say, do you believe this? Will you believe this? We're not just saying, will you believe this privately in your own life and, and, and not in any way that would bother anyone else? We're saying, will you, push come to shove, declare your commitment to Christ above all else in this life? Yeah, Making disciples means leading people to count the cost of following Jesus. It is not easy. Neither should the call to follow Jesus be taken lightly. But friends, if Jesus is who he says he is, and our sin is as bad as the Bible says that it is, then nothing but a total commitment to the one who died for those sins can ever save us from them. Yeah. Jesus calls his disciples to de- demonstrate that commitment publicly by being immersed in water among the members of his body, the church, to illustrate, to show to those who are witnessing and as a commitment in the life of, uh, uh, of the individual... That that believing person has died to sin and self and that the new life that they have received by faith and submission to Jesus as Lord is now reigning in them. That's the picture of baptism. The one standing in the baptistry saying, my life is now no longer my own. I'm no longer going to do things the way I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want. My life is now lived in submission to Christ and obedience to Him. I'm swearing allegiance to Jesus and turning from sin and self. My life is His. Here I go, right? Dunked into the water as a symbol of death to sin and and, and self and all that and raised up out of the waters of baptism to new life in the body of believers who have done the same. Christian, as you share the gospel intentionally, as you go to make disciples... Take special care when talking about the gospel to invite others to publicly show their trust and allegiance to Christ through baptism. Make a serious invitation to them. Don't just say, God made you for a relationship of love and worship with him. We have all, by our, uh, by our own disobedience to God and rebellion against him, we've all sinned and fallen short of, of what God intended for us. Uh, God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and raise him from the dead so that we can have new life in his name. Isn't that neat? And then walk away. Don't share the gospel and stop short of an invitation but share the gospel of who God is and who we are and and the the deadly nature of our sin and the saving work of Jesus Christ and then say, will you believe this? Would you believe this? Would you receive Christ as Savior today? And if they say yes, you praise the Lord, rejoice with the saints in heaven and then say, dear friend, now what you need to do is declare your public allegiance to Christ in the body of a church that believes the same way. To become a member of the body of Christ and to do that through baptism. Friends, you who are Christians committed to making disciples, commit to inviting people to trust Jesus, and then leading them, helping them to see the importance of baptism. Friend, you today who may be in your own heart and your own mind, you have received Jesus as Lord. You've trusted Him as Savior, but you've never been baptized, you've never been uh uh you've never given this visual picture of your death to sin and new life in christ through baptism let me invite you to do that today let me invite you to do that today. In a few moments, we're going to have, a uh, as we wrap up our, 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 our sermon time, we have a time of response. We're just singing a, a song of worship back to God based on His Word. And during that time, I'll be standing here at the front. Our student minister, Corey, will be standing here to receive you as well. If you have trusted Christ, but you've never made that decision public by being baptized, let us know so that we can walk with you in that process so that you might be baptized, showing your allegiance to Jesus and your identification with His body church be obedient to be baptized be obedient to lead people to baptism making disciples is commanded by the risen Jesus it happens intentionally it takes place as we uh, lead people to a public commitment of faith in Christ through baptism and then fourth we see that making disciples requires ongoing teaching making disciples requires ongoing teaching making disciples does not stop with sharing the gospel and baptizing a new believer Jesus himself states that along with with, with a public commitment to him, disciples are made through the process of continually teaching new believers. The Christian life requires education, instruction. It requires modeling behavior and action for one who is born again by faith in Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See what Jesus says we are to teach growing disciples. He says that we are to teach everything that he has commanded. Some would intend this to be only the Gospels, or worse, even just the words of Jesus in the Gospels. Like all we ever need for Christian living are the red letters of Christ in the Gospels. But even as such, even John, the gospel writer, says in his gospel that there was far more that Christ did than could be contained in any number of volumes. He says that in John 21:25. So surely the gospels contain some, much, of what Jesus commanded, but certainly not all. Rather, the Christian should understand the command of Christ to make disciples by teaching them to obey all he commanded as teaching disciples to obey all of the word of God. Which is the Word of Christ inspired by the Holy Spirit? What are we to teach those who are new believers in Christ, growing believers in Christ? This book and everything in it. What are we to teach them to obey? This book and everything in it. Paul understood the importance of teaching the Word of God and obedience to Jesus by obeying Scripture. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy, the 30-something pastor overseer in the city of Ephesus. He said and wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. work. All scripture, not just the words of Christ, which in Paul's own day had not even yet been uh, uh, and, and and written down and passed among the churches yet. So the scriptures that Paul is referring to there are, are, don't yet even include the New Testament because they're still being formed, but certainly the Old Testament. So the New Testament is not what we need for following Christ alone, but the Old Testament also because all of it speaks to the nature of God, the character of God, the depravity of our sin, our need for a Savior. All of it is instruction from God for living. Just earlier in the same letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 1-3, to Paul uh, Comments again on the importance of teaching the word of God. He says, You then, my child, you, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. From its earliest days, the importance of teaching obedience to Christ by teaching the scriptures was of high value in the church of God. Listen listen to 2 Timothy 1 through 3 again and see the four different generations of believers that are illustrated here. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here are the four generations of believers. Paul, his disciple, Timothy. The ones that Timothy will be teaching, the, the faithful men that he is to entrust the teaching to, and those that those faithful men will be able to teach others also. From its earliest days, the command to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, that command was never understood as just a singular generational command, but for every generation. It wasn't a command just for the apostles, just for Paul, but for them and everyone who would follow. And Paul demonstrates that. Paul telling young Timothy, this work of teaching disciples, this work of growing people in faith, is not just for me and it's not just for you. It's for those that you'll teach and the ones that will will be taught by them. And so on down the line. Dear friend, making disciples requires ongoing teaching. So, Christian, you who are committed to making disciples of Jesus, prioritize in your own life life life-on-life discipleship with other believers. Prioritize in your own life time spent with other Christians intentionally helping them to follow Jesus more faithfully. You've heard the old adage that in fishing more is caught than taught. I think the same is true in life. The things that we learn about life, uh, uh, about the, the habits that we acquire, the values that we embrace, we don't necessarily take all of those in just by sitting down across the table from our parents and having them lecture us. Or just sitting in a lecture hall on a college campus and listening to a professor lecture to us. Those values, those habits we take on, the beliefs that we embrace, the worldview that we take, is often developed uh, more times through working it out than it is just having it told to us. So it is the same with being a disciple of Jesus. We don't mature as disciples of Christ simply by sitting in a room and having someone lecture to us. And we cannot hope for new disciples of Jesus to grow in their faith simply by sitting in a room and listening to a sermon one time a week. It takes time. It takes time effort it takes work on the behalf of other christians to invest time to invest effort in the lives of others to see them grow in maturity and obedience to christ christian prioritize life on life discipleship with other believers if you're a parent begin in your own home begin with your own children if you're a grandparent focus on your grandchildren you don't even know how much influence you have upon their lives As a member of our church, look for ways to bring other believers who are younger than you or less mature in the faith, to bring them along with you in life, to read God's Word together, to observe and interpret it and apply it to your life together. Prioritize life-on-life discipleship with other believers because making disciples requires ongoing teaching. Finally, we see in this blessed passage, That making disciples, which is commanded by Jesus, which happens intentionally, requires a a public commitment of allegiance to Christ, which requires ongoing teaching, finally is a command, making disciples is a command that is ultimately empowered by Jesus. As Christ finishes his final words to his disciples here in Matthew's gospel, he says to them, In verse 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Literally, I am with you every day until the present age comes to a close. The all-authoritative, glorious, and victorious risen Jesus who commands His disciples to make disciples does not leave His disciples on their own to complete the task. Far from it. The Great Commission is Christ's mission. And He will ensure that His disciples have all that they need to complete the task. And what is it that Christ knows that His disciples need more than anything else in the world? Himself. Jesus knows that Christians who have have repented of their sins, who have turned to faith in Him, who have publicly declared their allegiance and faith in Him, those who endeavor to lead others to follow Him as well, cannot succeed in the task unless He Himself, the King of victory, empowers them to do it. And that is precisely what He promises to His disciples in this verse this promise of the enduring empowerment of the risen Jesus to accomplish the Great Commission is to every believer throughout history. His promise to be with His disciples as they make disciples is not just for the eleven. It's for every disciple that has ever been made of Jesus throughout the millennia down to every single sincere follower of Christ in this room today. Friend, you can claim the promise of Christ to be with you to the end of the age for yourself as you make disciples if you have followed Jesus in faith and repentance. This is for you. That's awesome. Consider this glorious truth. And it is glorious. The same Jesus who gave his life for your sins, the same Jesus who raised his life again from the dead, the Jesus who has bought you from spiritual death to life as you have trusted in him, the Jesus who commands you to compel and assist others to follow him, has himself promised himself to you as your constant aid and source of power to complete the great task of making disciples of all nations. Jesus just, does, doesn't just command it, he ensures it and he ensures ensures it with his own presence and power dear friend knowing that this commandment this great commission is is empowered by christ himself you then and i need to preach to myself this morning too. be confident in your disciple making have confidence as you make disciples knowing that it is christ in you ensuring that his mission will be completed And if Jesus intends to do it, there is nothing in heaven or on earth or in hell that can stop him. So be confident. Be confident as you share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. Be confident as you speak to your children about what it means to follow Christ. Be confident as you gauge your unbelieving neighbor with the gospel, unsure about how he or she will respond to it. Be confident because Christ has empowered you and assured that his mission will not fail. I was recently deeply convicted of what I perceive to be a sinful habit in my life. I was recently listening to a, a sermon by my seminary president, Jeff Orge of Gateway Seminary, on the importance of personal evangelism, of individually taking the gospel to others and inviting them to believe it. And as I listened to the sermon, I thought, this is really great. Like the, not, not just like the delivery of the sermon, but the content of the sermon is really awesome, of course I've got to do this. Of course the church must be about making disciples of those who are not yet believers in Jesus. Of course we must do this. I'm excited about this. And then five minutes later when the podcast was over, all that fervor and excitement slumped back down to my normal state of, of, of knowing evangelism is necessary and important. But right now I've got to butter my toast. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of First West, I fear that a good many of us, even in this room, are in danger of being excited about the gospel that has saved us, being excited about the Savior that has sent and empowered us for the next five minutes. And then by lunchtime, the conviction we have right now about the command to make disciples will be, placed by, will be replaced by consternation over whether, the, whether, whether to order the cheeseburger or the chicken strips. Why this slump? Why do we so quickly shift to making excuses for not sharing the gospel? Why is it so easy for us to be excited about the gospel now and in 25 minutes just go back to life as usual? How is it that our hearts which beat so hard for the Great Commission as we hear it preached with conviction can so quickly flatline when faced with the opportunity to actually obey it? How? It may be that we lack the confidence that comes with knowing Christ has truly empowered us to do this. Perhaps we so quickly had that Sunday to Monday slump because we just lack confidence that Christ is really with us. Friend, if that's you, know that Jesus did not promise to be with us and empower us for great commission obedience only one day a week when we're with other Christians. He didn't promise just to empower us for this hour. He said that He was with us always. That means every second, every minute, every hour, every day, always, until He returns again. If you lack confidence to obey the Great Commission, if you lack confidence and boldness to share the gospel with your family members or your neighbor or your coworker, pray this week, pray right now, that God would reinvigorate you, that He would give you faith to believe what Scripture says is true, in spite of how you may feel. Christian, Christ is with you. Be courageous, be bold, walk in confidence, make disciples with all the boldness that Christ musters within you. But maybe the reason that we vigorously amen the Great Commission in church and then quickly turn from obeying it on Monday morning is not because we doubt the power of Christ to work through through us, not because we doubt His power to save others, but maybe because we know His power all too well. Maybe we aren't really as afraid of people rejecting us and rejecting the gospel as we often say, but maybe what we really fear is what might happen when a rotten sinner hears the gospel from our lips and actually repents and believes it. Could it be that the reason we don't obey the Great Commission is because we don't really want to have to embrace our alcoholic neighbor who stands cursing in his driveway every Wednesday night as a brother in Christ? Could it be that we're afraid that God will actually turn the heart of your estranged sister so that she seeks the forgiveness that you would really rather not give? Is it at all possible that we aren't as committed to the Great Commission, making disciples by baptizing and teaching with intentionality because we, like that prophet Jonah, know that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, even for rotten sinners like those Ninevites and the people that live around us every day? Friend, if that's you and your heart beats strong for obedience to make disciples right now, but yet it, you're in danger of it flatlining tomorrow because you don't really want to see that person come to Christ. Like, you, you would, but you would just rather God do it through somebody else and at another church. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Friend, if that's you, and your heart beats strong for obedience to make disciples right now, keep it beating strong for the hardened sinners in your life tomorrow by remembering that before you knew Christ, you were just like them. But that God in His love sent someone to you with the news of Jesus. You were lost and dead in sin until someone came to you and said, Listen to who I know. Let me point you to the Jesus who died for not just my sins, but yours too, and rose from the dead. Let me tell you about what He has done to make you right with God who created you to know Him and love Him and worship Him. Let me tell you about this Christ. And, and not just tell you about it, but let me invite you to believe in Him. Trust your life to Him. Swear allegiance to Him as you turn from your sin and place faith in Him. Let me invite you to become one like me who seeks to point other people to Jesus. Christian, Christ has loved you deeply, infinitely, enough to give His life for your sins. Open your heart to sinners who have not yet known Christ's love for them. And in confidence, in Christ, who empowers you to fulfill the mission that He has given, you go and make disciples of all nations. Friend, if you're here this morning and you heard the gospel, the good news that Christ has died for you, He's given His life to bring you forgiveness of your sins and you know that you have not yet followed him publicly, you've not yet trusted, entrusted your life to him, turning from your sin and giving uh, control of your life over to him, today is the day for that. Yeah. In a moment we're going to sing a song of, of response and during that time, as I said before, Corey and I will be here at the front to pray with you, to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ, to, to lead you, if you haven't already, to to, to Pray to commit your life to Christ and to follow that commitment with baptism. We would love nothing more than to celebrate the new life that Christ is longing to give to you by faith in His name. Come do that today. Make that decision today. Friend, if you have been obedient to follow Jesus, but you've not been obedient by being baptized as a, as a public profession of your faith to other Christians and to the world, come and talk to Corey and I this morning about what, it would, what we would need to do to, to get your baptism scheduled and soon. That you may be obedient to Christ in that way and then begin doing the work of teaching others to obey all that He has commanded. Friend, if you have been a Christian, you've been baptized, but you are struggling with that commitment to make disciples, to teach others, start fresh today. Don't feel guilty about time lost. You can't go back and get it back anyway, but you can do something about today and tomorrow and the days ahead. If you've not been making disciples in the past, don't worry about that. Repent of that disobedience and make a commitment to make disciples today. Start fresh today and do it in the confidence that the risen Lord Jesus, who dwells in your hearts by faith, gives to you. Let's pray.